0: Hello, and welcome back to the Movable Type podcast, brought to you by University College London. Movable Type is a graduate peer-reviewed journal edited every year by PhD students from the English department at UCL. Please be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest issue, new episode releases, and more. We are on Twitter, at movabletypeucl, Instagram, at movabletype underscore UCL, and Facebook as movabletype or at MTUCL. And if you want to browse our latest issue while you listen, head on over to ucl.ac.uk slash movable hyphen type. Welcome to part two of our Environmental Humanities Special. Up next, we look at some key questions. What is environmental humanities? What does the field look like today? And where can you go to learn more? We asked three academics at different stages of their careers, whose varied approaches offer a glimpse into current research in the field. Although their work does not always fit neatly under the environmental humanities label, they each engage with, critique, and even push back against environmental topics and questions through their research. First, we'll hear from Kate Rigby, a well-established figure in eco-criticism and the environmental humanities. In 2021, she was awarded an Alexander von Humboldt Professorship at the University of Cologne, where she directs the Center for Multidisciplinary Environmental Studies in the Humanities. Up next will be Christine O'Cott, lecturer in Literature and Cultures of the Black Atlantic at King's College London. Having recently completed a position as research fellow in the English Department at the University of Warwick, She is currently writing a book about ecology, extraction, and contemporary literature. Finally, we have Peter Riley, who is Associate Professor of Poetry and Poetics at Durham University. His book Strandings was released by Profile Books earlier this year. His academic research examines 19th through 20th century poetry in relation to labor history, Marxism, and archival studies. How would you define environmental humanities? Well in a very broad sense um I think the
1: environmental humanities are concerned with the historical cultural ethical um aesthetic affective spiritual dimensions of human relationships with other living beings and with our shared earthly environs but that's a very sort of general definition. Uh, My favourite sort of thumbnail sketch of the Environmental Humanities is actually from the inaugural issue of the Environmental Humanities Journal. Um, and it's the editorial introduction, which is called Thinking Through the Environment, Unsettling the Humanities. I really like that because the implication is that this is a challenge to certain kind of assumptions and practices um, in the humanities, um, as well as kind of bringing something new to more scientific um, understandings of environmental problems. So um, part of their sort of definition reads... The environmental humanities engages with fundamental questions of meaning, value, responsibility, and purpose in a time of rapid and escalating change. At the core of this approach is a focus on the underlying cultural and philosophical frameworks that are entangled with the ways in which diverse human cultures have made themselves at home in a more than human world. And you can sort of unpack every phrase of that and you will actually have a very rich understanding of the environment humanities. But there it is in a a nutshell.
2: That's a really fascinating question because um, to me, I'm still kind of in the process of defining what it means to work in environmental humanities. And I think that's also part of the kind of excitement of working in this field is that it's constantly developing and going into a number of different directions. But at the moment, this is a kind of like state of my thinking <laughs> in this very moment, Um, environmental manatees is, is is a way of understanding how people have kind of shaped their relationship to what is extraneous to them and their being um, and how they've then in turn shaped that extraneous world according to their ideas of how society should be structured. So, As you can probably tell, I'm kind of a terrible environmental humanities person because I care so much about people. And my interest in environmental humanities also came from an interest in thinking about social hierarchies um, and and how how they are reflected both in literature and in the world that we live in. Um, And because of that, I would say that what fascinates me about environmental humanities and the field is that it... Gives us a way to think materially about the construction of social hierarchies, um, that it doesn't. It's it's very attached to the world out there, um, and the way that we make it, um, and that's always helped me.
3: I'm I'm torn on this one, uh, because you know, on on the one hand, it's uh, it's a term that. Signals, you know, the the basic proximity of of humans and environment, and, you know, brings that brings them in dialogue. But I, you know, on the other, I'm I'm not sure that it's really a term that gets to work as immediately as I as I maybe want it to. Um, you know, and I thought uh, I thought I keep returning to, and you know, however broad and maybe imprecise this 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 thought is. Uh, you you think you think about the, the 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 first stirrings of the industrial revolution not the first stirrings but you know when the industrial revolution really took hold maybe let's locate it in the middle of the 18th century uh and you know at the same moment you suddenly have as almost a kind of a flight impulse or a, an inverse projection the romantics coming along with with their conception of nature of 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 this of this environment um, a space in which you know that the sovereign, masculine, privileged self can su- you know, suddenly project themselves into, and I, I really like that idea. I think it's a really useful animating thought when thinking about the categories of humans and nature, because is it the case that you know some of our fundamental conceptions of the environment and nature are born out of uh, in a kind of a you know a, a, a reflexive sense? The moment of most, the most intense kind of industrial production that the world had hitherto seen. Uh, so nature as, you know, a kind of a fan, like a fantasy evacuation, an escape from the dark satanic mills. Uh, nature environment as dialectical rebound, right? Um, so so yes, you know, environmental humanities. Uh, but but maybe you know the the point for a, where, where I'm coming from it in terms of my own thinking. Uh, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd want to think of it more akin to, like, yeah, just a fan, like, nature as fantasy inversion of the various stages of capitalism. Uh, so, not necessarily something that, you know, pristine that can still be saved, but rather a category that's continually modified in relation to political economy. Um, sorry, I'm just going to say one more thing there. Environmental humanities. I, I, I'm not. Su- I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how satisfied I am with that. With that invocation of, the, of, of such a broad category, it's not humans destroying the planet, creating the conditions of the apocalypse. Uh, it's 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 accumulators of wealth, uh, as a very specific subcategory of humans.
0: Where do you see your research fitting into the field of environmental humanities, and how did you get there?
1: Currently, I would say that um, my uh, research is situated at the intersection of environmental, literary, historical, and religious studies. Uh, and I have a particular interest in decolonial, multispecies species approaches. Um, my way into the environmental humanities, I've been making my way towards the place I am now for a very long time. <laughs> Um, And I've come at it along a few different routes and at the core of it is passion, actually. Um, It's a passionate love of the natural world combined with um, a perception, a concern that it's being wrecked for no very good reason or for reasons that end up sort of providing uh, advantages to a A minority at the expense of the majority. And then thirdly, um, a desire to try and understand what are the deeper underlying sociocultural drivers that kind of brought us to this place and what sociocultural opportunities are there for taking a different turn, taking a different direction. So that's kind of, that was my starting point. And That really came into focus for me um, as a postgraduate um, student uh, in Melbourne, first at the University of Melbourne, then at Monash a long time ago, back in the mid-1980s, I suppose, um, in the field of German studies and comparative literature and critical theory. And I was hanging out with a lot of people who were interested in contemporary forms of um, of theory, mainly francophone. Um, and at the time, I didn't find them particularly helpful for thinking about environmental crisis. And where I ended up being drawn to was Adorno and Horkheimer's critique of the domination of nature in their extraordinary dialectic of enlightenment from the 19, from, from the 1940s, from towards the end of the Second World War when they were in exile uh, from Nazi Germany. And I kind of revisited their analysis of this dialectic of enlightenment through, um, through feminist and ecological and post-colonial perspectives um, in my doctoral thesis. So that was kind of one of my ways in, was through German thought, German literature and German thought. Then I had the amazing, um, wonderful opportunity to meet and become very close friends with a very eminent Australian eco-philosopher, Freya Matthews, right at the time when she was offering a crash course in eco-philosophy for free in a grungy pub in downtown Melbourne called The Rainbow. So I did this crash course in eco-philosophy. And um, I found myself particularly drawn to sort of forms of, I suppose, deep, deeper ecology in a, in a wide sense. Um, uh, to um, critical ecofeminism, uh, particularly the work of another eminent Australian philosopher, Val Plumwood, um, and um, also eco-spirituality. Uh, these were both personal and academic pursuits, I would have to say. Um, and then I discovered, I mean, I'm probably best known as an eco-critic, but I came to eco-criticism after I'd already been deeply immersed in kind of eco-philosophy and f- finding my own way to, to practice a kind of theoretically informed eco-criticism uh, without ever having discovered eco-criticism. Then I discovered eco-criticism in the late um, uh, 1990s. And I was so thrilled because I suddenly discovered I had a tribe. <laughs> there were other literary scholars who were doing this, doing this kind of crazy thing that I'd been trying to do all of my lonesome <laughs> in German studies in Australia. Um, and then right around that time, um, I was invited to join the Australian National Working Group on the Ecological Humanities. And there I was in conversation with environmental historians, environmental anthropologists also um, conservation biologists, climatologists, and this was incredibly formative. Then I also, I learned a lot from my PhD students. Um, uh, particularly uh, people like Ann Elvey and Mark Manilopoulos, who've gone on to kind of publish quite widely um, independently. Um, they really kind of introduced me to eco-biblical studies and eco-theology. Um, and that was very much sort of deepened and extended further by participating in a couple of extraordinary transdisciplinary eco-theology Symposia at Drew University with um, the uh, ecotheologian um, Catherine Keller and the sociologist of religion and ecology um, Laurel Kearns. And in my recent work, I've I've been sort of um, exploring more um, sort of ethnographic approaches, particularly in the area of religion and ecology. So um yeah so I think that's kind of brought me to where I am now.
2: <laughs> Actually that's such a fascinating question that I would I would love to hear what other people have to say about this because I now have a lot of colleagues and um and also have in the past had a lot of colleagues who have just been long time environmental humanities people um and I'm sort of an interloper in many ways. Um so I'd be really curious to see how other people have responded to this question. Um, but for me, I think I arrived there in what can only be described as like the most meandering way um, ever. And I, hope, I think a lot of people arrive at their research questions in that way, in that you write something and then you suddenly realize that actually the question you've been asking all along has been an entirely different one. Um, so um, when I was writing my doctoral thesis, I just wanted to understand how very recent and hyper contemporary literature um, by immigrants to the United States from Africa represented what we might call race um, against the backdrop of more liberal regimes um, of kind of multiculturalism. Right. Um, So I wanted to think about how do they see the difference in racialization? How do they see race on a global scale? And how is that even represented in literature? Because it's it's so difficult to try and represent something that is so carefully constructed and so deeply historical um on the level of form and at first i thought it was all about the law and the state and the way that the state regulates people and uh, that gave me a language to talk about something that isn't really overt exclusion um but is actually embedded in ideas of a state's needs and requirements so the idea of value right um rather than this idea of expulsion or 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 rejection of people. Um I think this is also a really grim conversation to have all the time because I, I had that conversation with people in my PhD and now I'm having to have it again um around various crises, so-called crises um with um that are produced by kind of long wars and conflicts. Um But by the end of the thesis, I'd actually written this chapter that didn't quite fit into this argument. And a very smart friend of mine was like, you'll see, it'll take over the entire project. And lo and behold, here we are. Um, It was not about the law, it was about recycling and the idea that sustainability is maintained by the notion of infinitely reusable racialized labor. Um, It was just weird to me that there was this novel that made a similar argument about the effect that recycling labor has, that and made it through a comparison or a formal comparison to mining labor, which I thought was just like such an odd way of thinking about it, especially because sustainability and recycling, and I've written about this in kind of public forums is such a kind of morally unambiguous thing, like it 's always seen as being just a good thing um, and to encounter a text in which it was very clearly not, I was just think it made me think a lot about like well, how race is produced through environment and work and labor. And this really appealed to me since I'm always interested in kind of theories of race that try to make connections, but then don't flatten history. Um, I've never really liked theories that suggest that nothing ever changes and race is always the same. Um, So in that case, I felt that extraction was doing something more than describing actual mining. It was describing mining, but it was also describing a process that had a kind of formal element, a formal literary element, and that was intertwined with the exploitation of racialized workers. Um, So by the end of the thesis, I got into the stage where I loved this chapter, I didn't know what to do with it. And then I started my postdoc at the University of Warwick, which I mean, is just a fantastic place to work in environmental humanities, um, because you skip all the steps, all the kind of liberal traps, and then just end up at like a really robust understanding of what you want to do and what what kind of political commitments you have. Um, And I arrived there wanting to think about extraction. Um, and what it means when we think of race in terms of extraction. Um, And for me, it's not just that racialized people are turned into commodities or raw materials that can be extracted, which is kind of a simplistic way of thinking about this historical relationship. But I wanted to develop a different way of thinking about how that works. So what does it mean, for instance, that in the case of South Africa, you've got this development of a very clearly kind of racial capitalist state um, against the backdrop of massive kind of mining and colonialism that is so tied to mining. And by that point, I'd written this chapter and I arrived at the University of Warwick as a postdoc on Mike Niblett and Chris Campbell's fantastic project about commodity frontiers. Um, and that completely just changed everything I thought I knew about the relationship between race and environment. Um, I cannot stress just how stupid I felt when I got there. Um, and I think feeling humbled is like a really great way to learn. Um, and I keep wanting to remember that. It's like, it's good when you don't know something because it means that you're going to learn something. Um, and some of the main takeaways were that I got from my time there are that environment or ecology that doesn't think about the Caribbean is basically missing a crucial piece of the analytic puzzle. Um, And also that liberal notions of environmental appreciation and a kind of pure nature or something that needs to be protected are consistently ineffective. And they also often are in danger of just falling into a kind of strange moralistic language that then subsequently turns into something quite bad, often to do with the reinforcement of racial hierarchies and social hierarchies more broadly. Um, And so, really the journey towards environmental humanities was and still is for me a, a journey through thinking about um social hierarchies their representation in literature um and now increasingly about the specific histories that tie these together
3: well i see my work as as maybe aligning with uh those of us who are maybe making sure that that the environment that category isn't allowed to float around uh with with any sense of you know kind of a- autonomy or uh, any pristinist delusions let's say I, I think you know like someone like jason moore's work on ecology uh does this really well you know his emphasis on dialectical bundling entanglement you know that's where maybe i get my my strandings metaphor from or one aspect of my strandings metaphor uh you know this this sense that you cannot extract the categories of nature and the environment out from uh yeah society politics economy um and you know i i think r- really i you know I, I worry about the ongoing fetishization of the natural world um you know wh- whether that's the the nature writing industry uh, whether that's the various nature programs available on mainstream television, um, and I think you know with, with the book I've I've just published, strandings, I, I I just wanted to, I wanted to foreground a sense of absolute complicity, contamination. I wanted to be in it. I wanted to be guilty. In Donna Haraway's terms, I wanted to stay with the trouble. I mean, ma- maybe one of the things that I I want to say is. I started my PhD in 2008, and I finished it in roughly 2012, so uh, the political economic terrain uh, or backdrop informing what I was doing fundamentally shifted, right, I, you know, more or less coincided with the, with the financial crash, and then in the wake of that, you know, li- li- living through the first stirrings of austerity, the introduction of student fees now the dismantling of pensions, uh, and I think mapping my strandings metaphor onto that very turbulent period of economic history, that, that's, 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 that's maybe why, why I, I, I saw st- stranded whales kind of reassert themselves, or assert themselves in a very particular way during that time. Uh, you know, the nation-state nation floundering on a beach you know, this huge upsurge in post-imperial nostalgia surrounding, you know, the, the whole the whole Brexit thing. Uh, and interestingly, uh, you know, I, I found out during the course of my research on, on stranded whales that when Britain in the late 18th century was feeling all sorts of anxieties about Napoleonic France, uh, British satirists started conceiving of the nation state in terms of rotting whale carcasses, so Britannia, the mighty whale, was being compromised, right? This, this maritime force was, um, was in danger of becoming beached. And in this extraordinary sort of historical feedback loop, uh, post-imperial nostalgia, uh, Brexit anxiety, continually projected itself uh, in terms of a series of beached and rotting whale carcass metaphors. So... In in a sense, though you know that these stranded whales or, or or the stranded whales kind of icon of our moment asserted itself in my life very forcibly, and also you know there's another thing going on here, my own subject position, white privileged male, you know I I of course I am absolutely bound up with this central metaphor. Uh, I'm sp- speaking as a, as a kind of a lyric I in this context registering all of these anxieties as they kind of flow through me, trying not to be reactionary about them, trying not to reaffirm all of these fictions about sovereignty, uh, isolationism, uh, you know, the, the isolato, trying to survive uh, against the currents of, of of turbulent times. That's one aspect of stranding or strandedness. Maybe trying to refuse those kinds of reactionary thoughts and rebound towards another sense of the word stranding, as in interrelationship, connection, kinship, re-establishing the commons. So my life is a trafficking back and forth between the temptations of reaffirming a stranded self, a leviathanic self, and the redemptive possibilities of dreaming up new ways of Reaching out, establishing community. Uh, so, so that's that's that that's a, a very long winded answer to your to your question. How did I get here? I just rode rode the waves of capital, as we all as we're all doing.
0: What do you see for the future of environmental humanities?
1: I think there are, there are a few things on the horizon. Um, one is. Uh, a, a, an expansion of the um, concern with environmental justice to a bio-inclusive eco-justice perspective um, and um, particularly I'm really interested in work in multi-species studies and multi-species ethnography um, um, Deborah Bird Rose, um, the environmental anthropologist and I suppose eco cultural theorist um, extraordinaire, um, um, talked about trans species justice um, and I think that you know in the face of um, escalating extinctions and dwindling uh, numbers of free living plants and animals and fungi and even biota in the soil. Um, it's so important to really come back to that early critique of um, of, of human supremacism um, and um, really understand that we are called ethically into a more than human community um, of concern so that I think that's one thing and that's that's very much already happening. I think another thing is um, you know it's clear the um, I mean it's clear in been clear in Australia for about two decades um, that climate change is already disrupting weather patterns in such a way as to cause infrequent in, you know increasing frequency and intensity of extreme events and therefore disasters um, that was really the focus for my book before last, Dancing with the Disaster, um, it became very evident to me as an Australian and also talking with climate scientists that even if miracle of miracles, uh, we managed to restrict um, average global warming to two degrees or even to 1.5 degrees, that's quite enough to end end up with um, really um, very unpredictable, unstable, and and frequently disastrous meteorological conditions, and with impacts on food, on water, displacing people, displacing species, adding to um, you know the extinction um, rate, um, and so I really think that we have to reckon with disaster. We we need to develop. Um, An ethics of living with disaster, of living humanely um, and considerately um, and mindfully with disaster. So, um, so that's the second thing. And the third thing. The third thing I kind of gestured towards previously in talking about where my own work is. Um, what I think is really distinctive about what's emerging in the space of the environmental humanities is um, forms of interdisciplinarity that bring the sort of hermeneutic and historical um, and ethical, philosophical kind of approaches of the humanities into conversation with uh, social research, the methods of, of, of social research, particularly ethnography, um, and what I'm particularly interested in, in increasingly are research projects that are participatory. One of my favourite recent books in this area is participatory research with more than human others, considering, um, for example, the dogs that are involved in developing um, Sort of new technologies to help people with various forms of disabilities, where it involves technologies and dogs and people. The dogs are seen as as research partners, as equal research partners, and and their, you know, their, their um their feelings and needs and 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 um values and perspectives, you know, are kind of also have to be respected insofar as we can from within our <laughs> narrow human little world. Obviously, we can't fully enter into, um, you know, the mind and experience of, of other creatures. But we can, we can be more or less attentive to where they're at. So, but yeah, participatory research with more than human others. I think that this is a really exciting sort of new, um, new terrain for environmental humanities work.
2: I mean looking into the future <laughs> in a moment of I don't I don't mean to fall into any tropes, but at the moment, thinking about the future is a scary, scary thing. But it can also be. A, I would hope that it can also be a way to imagine something, right? To to imagine, yeah, utopic futures. Um, and I I want to say that what I want for the environmental humanities is a turn away from kind of liberal sustainability culture that inadvertently reproduces notions about kind of pure nature as i've just said um and then just turns into silliness about population control i would like to shelve those arguments forever please um they are so boring and also just not correct (laughs) um and we should know better by now it's not like, I don't think that protecting the environment is a new strategy in the social hierarchy's playbook, right? There are plenty of terrible people in history who have appreciated going hiking. Um, uh, liking the environment does not a good for a good politics make. So I would like us to really think, I would like the field to really think about its political commitments. Um, and what I'm saying is that I'd like a lot less policing both literally and like kind of figuratively um about what is and isn't a morally correct engagement with environment um and more of an emphasis on some really exciting um work in um in other fields like environment like queer studies disability studies and indigenous studies um which have all produced fantastic work on environment that is sometimes not Properly engaged with the kind of mainstream environmental humanities, um, I absolutely love, for instance, Nicole Seymour's work and bad environmentalism, and um, which which really thinks about like how people try to be irreverent about this um construction, this moral construction of a pure nature, um, and and what strategies um marginalized people use um in order to just like challenge all of all of those assumptions and th- those are really the things we need to undo um, and those are also the hierarchies we need to undo in order to actually live ethically in, envi- and in and alongside environments of all kinds.
3: The degree to which we are living and working on shifting historical sands uh, and how the margins of possibility are, are, are seemingly continually being redrawn, not necess- definitely not in a redemptive or, or, or positive way, and sort of in, in, in the immediate sense. You know, so COVID, pandemic, just ongoing ecological collapse and crisis, then the extraordinary conflagration in, in Ukraine, what, what, whatever kind of s- circumference of believability that I had been living under prior to that historical moment it's just being—it's just being expanded. It's just—it's just being challenged. Uh, yeah, the the margins of reality continually being redrawn, whereby you know the unthinkable suddenly becomes thinkable again. And yeah, in that context, you can—you can certainly despair. You can rebound towards all of the conventional ways of being and working in the world, but also potentially that's a profoundly liberating moment to redraw the parameters of. How we think about relating to one another. I mean, specifically in relation to the academy. Well, let's say some of the some of the prom- promises that used to define the parameters of academic work have been subtracted. So stable pension, uh, decent working conditions. Uh, these are continually being compromised, uh, and so difficult difficult to know what shape the institution and what shape our academic labor is going to take over the coming over the coming years uh, you know I, I i'm just i'm just genuinely interested in the kinds of spaces and opportunities for discussion that will be facilitated by conventional university structures going forward uh i'm not really answering a question about environmental humanities but i think i am as well because i'm drawing specific attention to the environment that defines higher education and registering all of the ways that these are being degraded and compromised and how we as a community respond. Do we double down on the kind of the sanctities of our vocation um, and work harder because we think working harder will, you know, secure a job, secure that promotion, secure financial stability? Or do we start properly organising and resisting uh, this ongoing marketisation of higher education. If it's not the latter, then we've got huge problems going forward, I think.
0: For listeners new to the topic, where would you recommend they start? Well, I think the, the, the easiest way
1: in, actually, um, to begin with, is in fact with that editorial introduction to the first issue of the journal Environmental Humanities. You know it's only a few pages but you know there's a lot in there it's a great place to start Um, it's freely available online um, and so readily accessible so Environmental Humanities um, issue number one came out in 2012. Then there are there are now a couple of um, book-length introductions to the field which are very good um, one is by um, uh, Robert um, Emmett and David Nye and it's simply called the environmental, the environmental Humanities, A Critical Introduction and that's kind of thematically arranged and also has quite useful background to the emergence of the environmental Humanities. so that's a great read and then there is a brand new book which is really the first textbook in environmental humanities, with um, some thematic chapters focusing on big concepts like the Anthropocene, um, but then also looking at, um, the, if you like, the green threads that are now being woven together into the environmental humanities, the, the green threads that emerged in discrete disciplines. So there's a chapter on environmental literary studies or eco criticism. There's a chapter on environmental history, environmental philosophy, and so on. It's really terrific, um, and that is edited by um, John Ryan and Andrew Hubble, and it's called Introduction to the Environmental Humanities. So, those those are um, sort of academic books that I can recommend. Um, another text of a very different kind that I. It's definitely not everybody's cup of tea, but I just keep on being drawn back to it again and again and again, because there is so much in there that speaks to what we're grappling with um, intellectually, academically, and in our world today. Um, And that's Goethe's Faust, Goethe's two-part drama, Faust um and it, definitely not for everybody but but for people um who are into literature um uh it, you know particularly Faust part 2 um really explores um so many dimensions of um if you like it, it kind of the modern the modern condition um and um Aspects of um, the, the sort of well, the domination of nature actually that kind of impetus uh, to to sort of dominate and control, um, but also kind of countervailing countervailing possibilities. Um, uh, it's an extraordinary text. There's just one other thing that I would mention. It's also um, uh, well, I think you might have to pay for it online, but it's it's um, it's a very punchy article written by, um, co-authored by a horde of people um, including myself, a little minor bit part. Um, The lead author is Noel Castry and it's called Changing the Intellectual Climate and that was published in um, Nature Climate Change a few years back Um, and it's also really helpful because it's in a science journal and it's Um, objective is to explain why the humanities and qualitative social sciences are so important to considering the human dimensions of global environmental change um, and how um, damaging it is that those perspectives have been neglected. And there are little kind of boxes with definitions of environmental social science and environmental humanities. So that's another really useful kind of starting point? Hmm,
2: this is a, such a great question because it means that I can just like lead people down the path set, set, that I also went down when I did my postdoc and just skip all the bad stuff. Um, so I've already mentioned Mike and Chris um, who are just fantastic scholars of the Caribbean and environment and literature. And I think if you're interested in that in particular, you can't start anywhere better than their edited volume Um, which is called the Caribbean Aesthetics, World Ecology, Politics. Um, And it's one of those texts that just includes so many great contributors, but also if you go through the bibliography, you're just like, yeah, you're set for for the rest of your environmental humanities career. Um, And this is perhaps a more theoretical one, also a bit later, um, earlier, sorry. Um, But I recently taught the writing of Suzanne Césaire after some conversations for an MLA panel with Lubaba Chowdhury and Natalie Cassus. Um, And I just cannot stop thinking about it. It's one of those texts, like I just pick up all the time and I'm like, this is incredible. Every single line is just illuminating and um, I couldn't recommend it enough. Everyone buy and read The Great Camouflage, the collection of essays by Suzanne Césaire. Um, um. I've also found Jennifer Wenzel's work on African literature and extraction extremely generative. Um, she also wrote alongside Imra Zeman um, the afterwards to a special issue of textual practice that I'm in and raised some really important questions. Um, and what I appreciate about the work is that it pays careful attention to both history and those mediating processes that take place when we try to qu- represent the world and then read it. Um, and I think People I'm also really looking forward to reading are um and have, who I've been reading, but not in book form but who now have books coming out is someone like j. T. Roan, um whose book Dark Agoras is going to be this groundbreaking i it's 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 going I'm so excited to teach it one day um it looks incredible and really well situated in terms of how it'll change the distinction between what we call natural and built environment, and that's often one of the ways of excluding marginalized communities from histories of proper engagement with environment right. So people like Carolyn Finney have written about this really beautifully in black faces, white spaces. Um, So that's really something that I think some of the work that I've just talked about challenges, these divisions between built and natural um, and who gets to traverse all these spaces. Um, And a bit closer to home, I'd recommend everyone check out the work of Amit Josephine Budge um, and Thandi Levinson, two scholars and practitioners who I really admire. I also really admire because I myself am not a practitioner. I am someone who just writes <laughs> about uh, these questions. So um, that's, those are great places to start, but obviously it's like a huge field and it's a hugely exciting field to be in as well. Sometimes even very difficult to kind of follow what's, what's happening, what's new.
3: I've been doing a bit of uh, re- reading um, of, of history recently and uh, I've, I've returned to the work of two historians Peter Leinbau and Marcus Redeker. Uh, I've just I've just had a look again. I didn't I didn't really get the full force of this this work when when I came across it during my grad my grad school days, but it's called the Many-headed Hydra, the hidden history of the Revolutionary Atlantic. I mean, this is a work that that tells the story of those peoples who were well, you know were cast aside by the dominant maybe you know emergence of 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 modernity capitalist modernity and who struggled to imagine a world uh, and a relation to that world uh, that was that was fundamentally different from uh you know the recursive colonial fantasy of resource extraction uh alienation capital accumulation uh and the protection of private property. So all of those castaways and runaways and slaves uh, and militant workers who banded together and who started dreaming up the parameters of how the world might look askance of, well, all of those elements that continue to define our world today. Uh, And just registering exactly what we spoke about earlier, this moment as a period of intense historical trauma and upset and disorientation and realizing that in response to that disorientation we can retreat to all of the all of the fictions of the past we can retrench notions of selfhood sovereignty success or we can just hold out the opportunity that another world is possible uh, that in the lineaments of Monopoly capitalism. We can glimpse alternative futures and possibilities and ways of being with one another. Uh, that, if there is a sudden apocalyptic jolt, uh, we might be able to build the world again. That sounds hopelessly vague, doesn't it? But you know, I, that that that's all I'm able to articulate at the moment. You know, if you want something more programmatic, then don't come to a to an English literature scholar, right? Uh, that's uh, that's um, that's probably important
0: and as we've reached the end of our april episode we wish to thank all our lovely guests team and of course listeners for their support once again please be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest issue new episode releases and much more tune in to the movable type podcast next month for another exciting episode